Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works and mental health and mental illness. I'm with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Jacinda Ardern, up until recently the Prime Minister of New Zealand, has just resigned. She said, I'm not leaving because it was hard. I'm leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility, the responsibility to know when you're the right person to lead and also when you are not. She said, I know what the job takes and I know that I no longer had enough in the tank to do it justice. It's about knowing when you've got what it takes and what is needed to lead, but also having the courage to know when you don't. It is very rare for a prime minister to resign to resign voluntarily. The last Australian to do it was Robert Menzies in 1966, the year I was born. And that was after he'd been leading Australia for 16 years, so he needed a rest. What is needed to lead, to lead in politics, in a workplace, in a community organisation, and even in your family or your friend group? Why do so many leaders find it so hard to do what Jacinda Ardern did and step away voluntarily. What are the different types of leadership, the different models? What are the pros and cons of each one? What works and what doesn't? Is there, what would a perfect leader look like? So Ian, her resignation sounds a bit like she was experiencing some of the issues we discussed in our burnout episode. It did, James, and uh, in addition to her international stardom, I mean, let's face it, she has been a remarkable uh, icon of a different kind of leadership on the world stage at a time of very different styles mm. around the world, not surprisingly. But it did sound like she's worn out with it, so our burnout episodes, our discussions, that you couldn't really do this and continue to give the degree of emotional investment in the job. What I thought was interesting also contrary to a lot of, I'd say, management textbooks on the issue. Mm. She seemed to bring an emotional sensibility to the job that people found remarkable, like didn't associate with politicians, yep. didn't associate with leadership in the classical kind of like wartime tradition or the authoritarian tradition, but actually a kind of understanding and working with people in crisis. So I thought the whole thing was really interesting from a psychological point of view, from an emotional point of view, that this really high emotional intelligence was really recognised, I think, for the first time in a long time, as being essential to national leadership, as distinct from a lot of the posturing we've had over the last two decades of certain male types, return to authoritarianism, popularism, mm -hmm. simplistic kind of stuff, trying to work with people as people, but yet tied out by it. You know, it was actually really hard to do that for a prolonged period, to be emotionally responsive for a longer period. Yeah. Whereas others, you've made the point, have hung around for years, 16 years or longer. They seem to stay in the job. And desperately want to stay in it when they're kicked out. Which in is, fact, mm. I mean, everyone, everyone in Australian politics since 1966, I guess, has been kicked out one way or the other, by their own party or by the electorate. Or like Trump, they lose and they still won't go. Yeah. <laughs> As if the exercise of power for those people is what leadership's about. Mm. But there seems to be actually their own 
need to be in control and run it and believe that they are the best person for the job. So we'll talk about some different styles of leadership that you've alluded to from the authoritarian to the more inclusive. Um, Jacinda Ardern was praised for, as you said, having an empathetic, emotionally open style of leadership, although a slight caveat on that. We're kind of judging her off her press conferences. That's how she seemed in her press conferences. Who knows what she was like in meetings? Possibly the same, but but we don't really know that, do we? Well, I think we're in a crisis. So we saw crises, obviously the Christchurch uh, massacre and the uh, COVID. COVID and the volcanic eruption. She responded to crises that were unpredictable in ways that I think were not what other people would predict. She chose to do certain things. Now, the critics will say, well, that was very performative. You know, she chose to be a particular thing. But really, I think they surprised people, the extent to which she could be with people in crisis Mm. in a warm way and connect with people and then embody a national response to that in a particular way and not in the divisive way that has been so characteristic of world politics and of much of our society in recent time, which seemed to drive other people nuts (laughs) that she actually could do that. And then seemed to be genuine. I mean, they were not arranged. They were immediate responses to the particular, to identify with those who had been massacred in Christchurch, to respond to the distress of others in particular ways, in warm, encouraging, by the way she dressed, by the way she spoke, by the way she hugged people, mm. by the way she was physically with people, an emotional style that people found for politicians, really? They weren't grabbing their hands to shake them. She wasn't forcing herself in the thing. She seemed to embody what most people felt about those tragedies. So if if we accept she's, you know, more empathetic, more emotionally open than, than many other leaders, and there have been those in the past who've said, you know, uh, not being very in touch with your, emotion, with your emotions can be a effective way, not, don't know about a good way, but it's certainly an effective way of being a leader. I just sacked 3,000 people, now it's time for a nice dinner. Even people have said there's been a bit of a, if you're a psychopath and you're in charge of a large company, it might be helpful in some ways. But if she's at the other end, emotionally open and empathetic, and she is the one who's got burnout, does that kind of is that some evidence that that style of leadership takes more of a, a toll on your on your energy, on your mental health? Yeah, so I think that's the really interesting thing. feel the pain. Yeah. As I say, I'm not interested in management textbooks on leadership here. I'm interested in the impact on people's mental health and well-being. How long can you do those kind of things? In the burnout episodes, and I think something that someone said to me subsequently about high-performance sports and everything, you can't be at the top of your game all the time. Hmm. You have to have time out. There is no time out as a prime minister. There is no time out for the time that you're in charge. Every day and every crisis, she was expected, as, as we expect of our leaders these days, to be the person that goes to the centre of the crisis. That responds, whether that was COVID or the Christchurch massacre or the other disasters, as well as running complex national policy things. So it's kind of interesting. I think we have unrealistic expectations of people mm-hmm. now. In fact, somebody who's a political consultant said to me some years ago, I was saying, like, how is it that people get to be prime minister or get to be what – he said, it's the ones who survive, who actually are not that emotionally responsive, often get to the top job right. because they're relatively insensitive mm. <laughs> to the slings and arrows. And these days, to the social media abuse or to the critique or they're the wrong colour or they're the wrong gender or they're the wrong type or they're the wrong something, somebody's going to hate them, somebody's going to criticise them. And that that has, and those who are sensitive to that, uh, pay a much higher personal price. Those who are relatively insensitive carry on regardless, going, "No, I'm the best person. I don't care what they say." Yeah. So I think it's an interesting thing. We say we want people. Many of us say we want people like 
Jacinda Ardern, people who are kind, people who are sensitive, people who embody more of our emotional response to the situation, tap into what we're about. But then again, <laughs> you know, we expect them to be able to do that day in, day out. I mean, she gave birth at the same time as a relationship. Mm. She's a relatively young woman in a particular thing. You know, we expect them to not have real emotions, real lives. So it's an interesting, I think a really interesting case kind of example of contrast. Of course, context matters as well. So I was also thinking about the, you know, the current uh, president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, and the you know, response of a situation. People go, oh, look, he was a TV comic. He was this, he was that. But he seems to have actually embodied the Ukrainian spirit in the time of real crisis, not, not in the way, again, that wartime leaders would have traditionally been thought about. Somebody who sort of seems to understand and then be able to articulate what's required. I mean, presumably at huge personal cost <laughs> and in that situation under huge threat you know, to life and limb in those situations. So it's kind of interesting, I think, what our expectations are of leaders. And then can people be in these situations without getting burnt out? Like how do you actually stay in the situation? So, you know, this does seem to be something of a trade-off, you know, between a style of thing which says, look, become more emotionally insensitive and you'll, you'll last longer in the job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or be more... How people are. I was reminded, I was trying to think of the last Australian Prime Minister that was really good at it for a while. And I was thinking of probably Bob Hawke, mm. you know, but he cried and he got upset and he was distressed by issues around his own family and his daughters and whatever else. And people at the time, 1980s, they actually thought that was really good. You know? mm. He did stay in the job longer, but I think he probably fluctuated more in terms of, you know, but he did seem to at least emotionally tap into some aspects of this. Oh, so I think yeah. it's not just a gender thing. It's not just an age thing. I think mm. we do see different people. But I think the sustainability so it raises the question about high performance, high pressure jobs, situations that people are in. If you are emotionally sensitive, can you sustain it? <laughs> you know, or do you run the risk mm. of you – know, I've heard other people say to various leaders, including prime ministers and others, they've got to take it one day at a time. They've got to find time in each day. They've got to actually take breaks. They've got to take holidays. Well, that's they've what got we to move say away. on this podcast. Yeah. Is anyone listening? Hmm. <laughs> James, I think we're onto something here. Yeah. Perhaps we should go into political consultancy. Or more importantly, I think leadership within – let's just forget politics for a while – leadership in other sets of organisations. If the expectation is that the leader is there 365 days doing the particular thing as an individual to run the whole joint – it's going to fail. Well, that leads us to a few different types of leadership that the experts talk about. And one is autocratic and authoritarian, where control is centered at the top. Quick decisions are possible, but everyone but the leader can feel disempowered and frustrated. Armies are examples. Old style monarchy um, is the example. The king is always right or the queen. Uh, I guess probably a few small businesses. Families with young children. The parents just tell the kids what to do. They pick them up and carry them. That's what we're doing. Uh, orders issued and followed. One down from there, paternalistic leadership where leaders treat subordinates as if they are their parent. Loyalty from workers is expected. Our workplace is a family, but remember, all you workers are the kids, and I am the parent. Then we get uh, democratic. It's when your kids become teenagers, more consultative decision-making, power delegated more, workers more empowered, uh, and then laissez-faire. Workers have autonomy in how they complete tasks, a little bit of supervision, but you can kind of yeah, have a lot of freedom. So what do you want to say about all them? 
It's fascinating, the military one. Mm. You know, I've known a few people who said, you know, nothing better than the British Navy. One admiral, <laughs> everyone in charge, you know, everyone subordinate. And the classic right. the wartime analogies are kind of used. And I was reminded of this. I don't know if you've ever seen the film uh, about Patton, the American general, where George C. Scott had won an Academy Award for his portrayal of this, the hard-driving, aggressive, decision-making, mm. wins wars, except they didn't trust him, <laughs> actually, right. to lead the invasion of back into Europe and et cetera, because it was far more complicated than that. Mm. They had to go for guys who actually understood the complexity, the logistics. So while he had a value in a straight transactional thing, go fight that battle, George, <laughs> or that good pattern, you know, kind of like whatever, it didn't work. So I think there's a lot of mythology around the authoritarian style, mm. even in war times and in armies, and I think in modern armies. So that one, much perpetrated, the male aggressive leader in a crisis and the decision-making is efficient, doesn't work. In fact, you've seen this in other things like airlines and stuff, you know, where the pilot's about to crash the plane and no one wants to challenge them. <laughs> you know, yes. Um, actually, you know, we're going to miss the runway. You know? So for those who watch those air crasher shows, you know, the one person in charge making all the decisions who's has this godlike quality and understands all things, it fails in complex human systems, yeah. including in wartime and in crisis, et cetera. So I think those kind of notions are psychologically dumb because they disempower others. And as humans, our collective decision-making, although complex, <laughs> is often better. So, And then you went to the second one, which is a sort of watered-down version of that, the mm. paternalistic one. Yes, 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 we're all one big happy family, but I'm dead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. got the credit card, I've got the power, I'm in charge. Which, again, I think is obviously disempowering. But also, in our complex systems, doesn't work. So I think what people have found hard is going, okay, at a personal level and an emotional level, those traditional kind of ideas are not very effective. Mm. But to do the other, to run highly collaborative, to run inclusive kind of systems where, if you like, responsibility and accountability are shared, actually take time and they take effort and they're less predictable. You can't point the finger so much at who's right. And, and obviously, for those who enjoy the exercise of power <laughs> – it's hard. They're hard not to much let fun. go. <laughs> Trump won't go. I'm running it. I'm the president. But you, know. you have previously said in our episode on autonomy that leaders that can devolve power and make workers feel more in control, more in com command of a um, what they're doing and be their own destiny will be rewarded with higher productivity, um, a more healthier workforce, less sick days, etc. Yes. So I think where, what I'm saying is how – so while you might have CEOs and all this kind of – I mean like corporate kind of talk, the C-suite sort of stuff, people in charge of this bit of the thing, it is their capacity to work with others, to allow those people to do the best that they can do mm. and, and, and be able to make decisions about those particular things within those particular er – their area or their level of responsibility that actually translates. But that takes a lot of people sense. Yeah. That takes a lot of people sense. What you actually end up with in a lot of leadership situations is still people who want to micromanage, who want to control what each of those elements do. Mm. And if they can't control it, they're very anxious about it. And they sort of have the kind of really, I think, weird belief that they understand best how to run all of those particular things. When they're trying to get something to move, of course, in complex organizations, you are trying to get the organization collectively to do something, to sign on to something to sign on to an idea. And I think going back to the Jacinda Ardern thing, she did a marvellous thing during the Christchurch. She said, what is it New Zealanders think about themselves as being inclusive and agreeable and responsive in a particular way? You know, what's the, what's the shared value, shared idea underneath it? 
I mean, great Australian leaders at times, I think, have been able to tap into that. What is it we all really have in common? Mm-hmm. Not with all the things that divide us, not in all the ways that we are all different. So we're recording this two days before Australia Day and we're going to hear all that stuff. And I just think it's a load of crap. Um, frankly, the fact that 25 million people can have anything in particular in common, there might be some vague thing. We like living here and we all like to be nice to each other and mateship, but probably Peruvians think that and Angolans and everyone, really. This is we should take up another time. Every yeah. country believes it's exceptional. Yeah, exactly. We, our exceptionalism. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it that human groups have the belief they're exceptional? My family's exceptional. My workplace is exceptional. My nation's exceptional. Yeah. And I'm better than all the others. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. apply it to our health system and our economic system and our political system. It's a really interesting phenomena. But it is one of collective ideas in a particular way. If you want people to act collectively – Yeah. Go back to leadership. You've got to have some shared ideas. So I think you can do that in a small organisation, maybe a company with 100 people or something, to a degree, but not with 25 million people. Well, it depends on the circumstances. This is an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, you can, you can, you know, you can get it up a bit from maybe 30% or 50% share these ideas. But When do we do it well? I don't know. In a crisis. So the United States is, you know, 50 separate states and territories fighting each other, except when they're fighting an external enemy, right? right? So Unless it's COVID. That was an internal problem. They what? tried to caught the Chinese virus. but No, but COVID was an external enemy. It was a virus and they didn't really But they couldn't well. develop a collective thing to fight. No, they couldn't. When it was the Russians previously or now the Chinese or whatever else or it's the Mexicans have stolen all our jobs, you know, then you get a collective thing. Now, I mean, in the obvious example, it's really true. Take the Ukraine currently, right? Mm. A collective sense of national identity is critical to actually the – genuine threat they face to their nationhood. Yeah, but with right? the US, there was lots of opposition to the 1990s Gulf War, the early 2000s. Yeah. It has to be a real one. No, but yeah, it has yeah. to be one that actually threatens the United States. yeah, right. But go back to the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you that's going to – your country getting bombed is going right. to go. Right, so does it's it have, interesting. Does it, have, well, does it require that, though? <laughs> well, in the United States, Yes. Mm. And I think it goes back to social connection and shared kind of ideas. The US has a very strong individualistic, competitive mm. at, the, at the local level, at the regional level, at the state level. So it's very hard. When people talk about the United States, I just go, you're kidding. It's not one country. There's no such place. You know, the yeah, yeah, it's interesting yeah. that patriotic songs and flags and whatever else. But in reality, talk about it doesn't exist in Australia. It doesn't exist in the US mm. at all. But people have ideas. We've seen in the Brexit thing in the UK an idea of the old England you know, doesn't include all those coloured people and those immigrants and all those other things. Mm. You see this going on in European states again at the moment. You know, so this identity issue is really what you, what you just said about Australia is, I think, a really interesting thing. Do we, at what level do we share things in common? Going back to the leadership, one of the key things about leadership then is, I think, are there genuine shared goals and ideas that allow you to act collectively? Right. Because otherwise you're going to fall back on authoritarianism. Do what I tell you or I'm going to sack you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But if you can get into the shared kind of concept mm. in a particular way. Did you see Jacinda Ardern in the middle of COVID when she was in a jar and he's going to bed? It was marvellous. She did think yeah, for a yeah, moment, yeah. I'm going to bed now. Now we all need to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. I'm in my jammies. I'm feeding my baby. We're going to bed now. It was really marvellously – you know, we don't get any people would say it was performative, it was for the show, but it was a marvellous kind of like mm. – Here's what we all need to do. I'm not standing here at a press conference at a lectern in front of the Prime Minister's things telling you all what to do. I'm doing it. 
yeah. in a particular way. Zelensky in the Ukraine saying, I don't need to lift out of here. I need to stay here and be in the middle of this 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 terrible thing. And I'm just as much at risk as everybody else of being bombed. You know, So I think the re- there's a thing about real leadership, which does somehow tap into that collective idea of the problem we all face. Now, in COVID, interesting contrast, James, I'm going to slightly disagree with you, I think. I think Australia did respond. We had problems with states and territories, but people did generally yeah, accept true. we all needed to do something true. for a while to the extent that we could <laughs> while there was agreement. Yeah. So in countries like Australia, we had much more collective action despite all the difficulties than somewhere like the US, which has been a disaster. Now we seem, yeah, to, have a, now we seem to have a collective idea we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to let it run. So I don't think it doesn't exist, but, but is it genuine? I mean, so, for example, for nation states, it is very problematic now to talk about we all share one value. I think at another level, we have much more recognition of the variety of identities and backgrounds and mm. contrasts. You can't simply all rally behind a flag. Yeah, that's right. So you're a leader in your workplace at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney, right? You're one of the leaders there. And you've also been a leader in various mental health campaigns and initiatives over the last 20 years. You were the inaugural um, CEO of Beyond Blue, so another leadership uh, role. Do you have principles of leadership? Yeah, and I think it's hard, right? Because right? I tend – well, it's good because uh, here's, the, here's the challenge. I tend to have strong views about what I think should happen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Anyone who knows me wouldn't say that I wasn't opinionated. Mm. <laughs> On the other hand, to get things done – often requires a coalition of like minds or a recent thing. I actually, in the various team structures I'm associated with, I think the delegation of people to their responsible skills is important. Engaging people who are different is important. I've always liked to recruit people who disagree with me, <laughs> actually. Really? Yeah. Well, well they say you they should say, do that. They say stuff either through their background. I mean, I don't think just to be disagreeable for the sake of being disagreeable, like not to be just oppositional, but people who come at the problem genuinely different to my background, to the mm. problem. So I would say that often I'm looking to engage with people who do not share the same background intrinsic sets of ideas that I do. If I just line up with all those people, I t- we tend to say the same thing. There's a group yeah. think. So I, th- I so would say- So you have strong ideas and you like to harness a coalition to get them through, but you're almost deliberately making that difficult for yourself by, by recruiting people who are going to disagree with you. Yes. Right. Because but they I think, might be but right. Because you between, accept that they might be right. And you yeah. Might be well, I think it's a genuineness. I mean, not disagree because just for the sake of no. disagreeing. So we're genuinely, but this goes to the common values. Things, we're genuinely trying to achieve the same thing, say in my world, mental health reform or progress mm, in mm. the particular areas. We share, genuinely share a common goal, but we would come at the problem differently. Yeah. And that may require many things I'm involved in. There are many different sets of skills required to do that. So, for example, I tend to have a few like – professional technical skills in the medical area. Like I love to work with people who are administratively really good because mm. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So I like people who are good at the paperwork, at the finance, at the organisational administration, really strong administrative staff, along with strong academic staff, people whose academic disciplines are different to mine. Mm. I love to learn from economists and social scientists and others yeah. outside my particular thing who come up with the same problem from a different perspective. So I think that's one of the – challenges that we face because all the areas that we're in are technically deep and we have a tendency to talk the same language all the time <laughs> to people we know. You just don't understand me. You need to be an economist. You don't understand me. You need to be a sociologist. Mm. You don't understand me because I'm a medical researcher or a brain scientist or something. You know, So I think that's from the jobs I'm in, the challenge is to get the right group of people 
with shared values but variable perspectives and at different levels of career development to actually sustain that. So it's not about one individual. It's not about just my style or perhaps more importantly, just my belief system (laughs) dominates what we do. Yeah. So two friends of mine who've worked in very big organizations near near the top have described to me the best leader they've served under and they've both said whilst identifying different people, pretty much the same thing. And they've both said, so we'd have a meeting and we'd discuss some vexed issue. What do we, the question is, what do we do? And the leader would go around the room after they talked about it for a while, there'd be six people in the room, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? Get all, all the opinions of everyone. And then he, he or she would sit back, there'd be a long silence, quite long, well, it might be a couple of minutes and everyone would kind of wait. And then the leader would go, this is what we're going to do. So what do you think of that as a model? Yeah, I was remarking to somebody yesterday, uh, and, uh, I won't name her, but a fabulous old uh, political operator I used to work with. She used to get 80 people in the room. Oh, God. Get all, get all their ideas. And, of course, the chance that there was consensus amongst the 80 was nil. So these leaders weren't looking for consensus. No. They were looking for their five advisors to give them advice they knew that the buck stopped with them. They were the boss. They would listen carefully to the mood of the room, the different ideas were, were, were a majority heading one way, and then they would make their own decision because they're so the, the boss. So the end, uh, yeah. They wouldn't vote. Wasn't yeah, so let's, let's go back to that. I mean, I don't the think- The CEO model, the prime minister model. Yeah. Well, I'm, not the prime minister model, actually, because prime ministers, they vote in cabinet, don't they? Mm, kind yeah, of. They anyway, let's not go well, back into politics. <laughs> Depends whether you're the minister for everything. I'm the minister and the prime yeah. minister. <laughs> <laughs> I've got five votes, you only got one. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting thing because that means the decision-making still resided with the one, with one person. person. Yeah. So I'm not much of an- uh, but both of the both of the people who, who told me these separate stories about separate people were saying they were impressed, and you know the organisation was set up so there was one CEO, so it was incumbent on them really to make the decision. So I think more complex, big complex organisations don't rely on the one CEO. They may have a, if you like, kitchen cabinet. They may have certain things we mm. saw during the previous financial crisis, I think Rudd had himself and three other ministers, a kitchen cabinet of four who were Mm. making the key decisions. So I think there is a truth that you need a decision-making system where at the end of the day, a decision is made. So other people I've worked with, and some of them I don't really like, but one of the interesting things is, and it goes back to some authoritarian styles, in very complex organisations, it needs to be clear what the decision actually is. Oh, of course. so lots of university meetings I sit through, lots of people give express opinions and they're really – and then they go, oh, look, there's a lot of really good opinions and they're really senior people, so let's have another meeting. Yeah. I can't stand that and it doesn't work. So I think there's the issue about collective decision-making, being clear. Uh, during the Rudd government period, there were four ministers making decisions during the financial crisis, a time of things, Rudd plus the treasurer plus two others, you know. You see, I think in, in really complex organisations, there might be six, there might be eight. Beyond that, but that group – that group of senior people with different perspectives says, not I at the end of the meeting, we. but we have agreed that the next, what we're going to do is X. And now, but the 20,000 you know, people in the organisation need to know that thing is what But I would need. imagine if you have a kitchen cabinet of four, for example, I don't know how it worked, but I would imagine if it was two all, the Prime Minister or the CEO would, would have the cast. But it's vote. not a vote. 
Here's another one. But four people aren't always going to agree. No, but we, four we people. Should splur- we should, you know, financial stimulus of $10 billion. No, no, financial stimulus of $2 billion. We disagree. So one of the things about leadership groups that work is consensus. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's not a vote, not 2-2, two, 3-1, two, whatever. What is it? If, Everyone if, gives. If you split, let's say the opinions are variously split, the issue is not easily resolved. Mm. It doesn't mean, therefore, that, all right, We'll have another meeting in a week. I win. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, we can't put off actually not yeah. deciding. We can't not decide. A decision needs to be made. Mm. But how that – the process of how that decision is made mm. and that everyone can then live with it. So the return – and we've seen now in the Australian government, uh, the new Prime Minister talking about the return to Cabinet style. Lots of different opinions get expressed. But at the end of the day, the government has decided. And now all the expectations are of that Cabinet that they will support that. Not they'll run out and say, I voted against it. <laughs> I didn't want it. Mm. You know, I lost the vote 6-1, but I'm still against it. You know, and I think that sort of cabinet solidarity, that idea of a collective group, you know, it's a very interesting one. But it requires then people to put aside necessarily their own preferred thing to get a particular thing. I've been involved in several uh, high-level government uh, decisions about certain aspects of mental health reform or health reform. I have over my years. It's been great fun. And it hasn't always gone exactly (laughs) – what I would have chosen. No, but, I gather that. But it was good enough. And I think uh, Jeff Gallup, someone I've talked to a lot, previous uh, Premier of Western Australia, is talking about the, you know, the art of politics is what is deliverable and can be implemented because there's enough people in support of it. Mm. And it's not perfect, but it's close enough. And of course, people who are more hardline or ideological go, no, unless it's perfect, we're not having it. Unless we have perfect carbon emissions trading scheme, we're not having it. Unless we have perfect movement away from, you know, Fossil fuels immediately, we're not supporting anything. You know, that, that is also a recipe for doing nothing. Yeah. The <laughs> you know, perfect, that's ineffective leadership. The perfect is the enemy of the Yeah. Perfect. And so what is the – and I think Jeff Gallup's another great example of a really sensitive guy who was really good in a leadership role, you know, for the period that he was in that role, but a sensitive guy in that particular uh, role of having enough people who can then act collectively. The challenge in humans is to get the group – to actually, not to be right. I'm right, you're all wrong, but we did the opposite. <laughs> Let's talk about another aspect of leadership. In Once an organisation gets over a certain size, many of the workers are two, three, four, seven steps away from the leader and have very little direct contact with the leader. Um, leaders can talk about values. They need to model values. If there are particular values of the organisation, let's call it a company that they want that they want that company to have. How do leaders translate their vision, you know, to a thousand employees, to to, to ten thousand employees, without it all becoming meaningless and removed? Yeah. So back to Jacinda Ardern, I was just thinking about how to get millions of people to do something. Mm. I was thinking about Gandhi, right? Oh, yeah. How to get millions of people to adopt a non-violent approach to an oppressive thing? I think the answer to that lies in embodying the thing. So that's not the telling the thing, ordering the thing, saying the thing. I mean, does anyone believe anything Trump says? Mm. <laughs> is there any interest in his own? Well, some people do. Mm. You know, whereas actually people who are not trying to do that. I was reminded uh, of an anniversary, sadly, of Martin Luther King's death mm. and inspirational speeches and other things. It's a, it's a capacity to embody the thing. So when we talk about the common values and stuff, it has to be – so people talk about genuineness and authenticity and a way of doing things, which is itself 
exceptional. I do think Jacinda Ardern was exceptional in terms of the way in which she embodied the emotionality or kindness. She's not something she was saying. A lot of other people could have said what she said, and we would have gone, well, you're kidding. You know, that's not it. That's not authentic. That's not who she is. So the pretend nature of a lot of popular politics and the pretend nature of a lot of leadership, the pretend mm. nature of a lot of CEOs and whatever else, people just go, well, it's not authentic. Whatever it is they're trying to – because you do want 10,000 people or 20,000 people or you know a whole group of people to join in with an idea. The power of ideas, but I think you want the people are looking for people who embody those ideas. Mm. There's a genuineness about them. So, so the people I really like who are genuine, I often do disagree with them. I disagree with them about the specifics, the technicalities, but I agree with them about the goal and mm. I agree with them about the genuineness, even if we disagree about the method. That connection with people. So I'm, I've met Peter Beattie. Former yeah. president, uh, Premier. president, Premier of Queensland for two minutes in my life, right? And I'll never forget it because I was emceeing something for the Queensland Premier and Cabinet Department or something. And the day before, my dad got a little heart murmur. Spoiler alert, turned out to be fine. But at the time, it appeared to be really serious. So I had to ring him up and say, look, I might not be able to come, medical thing, my dad, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, dad went to the doctor. It's all fine. So I went to Queensland and uh, was getting briefed for the event and Peter Beattie came down and, you know, he was the main guest and whatever, said hello, which is normal. And then he goes, how's your dad? And I go, oh, he's all fine, thank you. And it was such a nice, you know, busy guy. Obviously, they'd said to him, we might have to get a new MC because this guy's, you know, dad's blah, blah, blah. But just the fact that he said it, human, kind, empathetic, and it didn't take much for him to do that, really, but something I remember 20 years later. Yes, that human connection. I really like those uh, leaders, prime ministers, and other people. You know, you see those reception lines that usually they come to visit an event, and there's the boss, yeah, and the yeah, second yeah. boss, and the third boss. They go straight past, not straight past, but really, sorry, to find the people at the back of the room, the workers, mm. the students in my situation, the students, go talk to, and go talk to them in a genuine, human kind of way. They connect. Now, the end result of that is, of course, they recruit people to their idea. Yeah, which is what he did. So I that, told, well, I lived in New South Wales, but I told heaps of people what a good what guy. What a great guy he was. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is the, this is the for politics, I think, the catch-22. We say we want those people, but those people who are really good at it, I do think, pay a higher price. Mm. They're much more connected to the impact of their decisions on people, and they're affected by what people say back to them about what they've done. Okay, we're nearing the end. Two more questions. One, describe the perfect leader. So I think you just hit the nail on the head, is that people who connect with people. So I'm going to go for the emotional intelligence bit. We have historically underrated in the British Army version and the wartime mm-hmm. leader version and the whatever else. But actually, in complex, complex organisations, even in crisis, the people who understand the human context and therefore appreciate the differences, that things they do have different sorts of impacts on people. People will respond differently but can live with that, Mm. (laughs) you know. Then I think the second bit is to the extent to which they can embody that, you know. It's it's not just about being right or having the authority. Yeah. Well, I'm the CEO, so I'm going to decide. So I didn't like your example, the bloke at the end who just says, I'll decide. Yeah, right. Even though he did the sort of inclusive thing. Yeah. He went, ah, well, yeah, kind of, but really. Oh, I want to give you another example. Your boss, Mark Scott, who's been a guest on our podcast, when he started the ABC, I was hosting The New Inventors, and we we're about to record an episode. I was backstage about to go on. There's this big guy lurking in the background. And who's that? And anyway, he, he comes up 
And he goes, oh, look, sorry to interrupt, mate. I'm Mark Scott, just walking around the building today, saying hello to people. I thought that was, now, I, I was a TV host, so, you know, but he was doing it to everyone, you know, like, not just the more high-profile people. And there were certainly other people in organisations I've been to who never did that. It's the smartest thing you can do if you're starting in any organisation, spend your first day walking around just meeting people and everyone will think, oh, how unreal. They just came up to me and introduced themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think we're very fortunate at the University of Sydney that he has been appointed as our Vice-Chancellor. Yeah. And from a non-academic background, and trust me, amongst the academic world, what? Yeah, he's yeah. not a professor, he's not a technician, he's not like us. Mm. No. He's from running large, complex organisations mm. and getting people to join in. So I think actually masterstroke of our university to appoint him. But that, but the thing is, it has to be genuine. Yeah. So what you said is Same you can't genuine. pretend to do that. Yeah. The person who does it, and I think Mark is a good example, I think he's genuine in doing that. That leadership style opens the door to possibility. Mm. Still needs to be followed by decision-making, action, accountability, but it's such a difference to the right I'm appointed the president, the prime minister, the vice chancellor. I'm in charge now what I'm going to do. So I think there's still a you know need to articulate what comes after that. But I would agree with you. I think that's an essential first step that is traditionally underrated yeah. in a lot of our social discourse. So one of our listeners has just been elected president of their local surf club or cricket club or... Uh, coordinator of their book club or being promoted in their work where they're now running a team of 30 people and they're, they've been listening with interest, but they're not sure if they've got, got it. <laughs> yeah. So what would your practical advice for them be? It is the, the shared values thing. What, what's the shared values sitting underneath? You express deep skepticism like many Australians do <laughs> about what do we share in common? But I think that's the thing, is trying to find out what we share in common. If you mm. don't share stuff in common, you're going to have a lot of conflict. But say you've been promoted to run a team of 30 people in your workplace. What do we share in common? We all you know, work in this company that makes, uh, that makes boats. But do we care? Well, right? probably. Do we care about the quality of the product? Do we care about what mm. people think about that particular? Surf Club is a good example. Do we care about what a great job we do saving lives? Yeah. Right? To tap into the common value as to why. Or do we care about the community participation out here? We're all out here volunteering. Mm. Like to pick up what is common about the particular thing. I love people who work in medical research. They're trying to solve really complicated problems yeah. for the future, benefit of others. That's why they're there. And yeah. tapping into that, because there's plenty of hard times, there are plenty of administrative issues, challenges, things that go wrong, and then you can descend into the – complaints, whinge, <laughs> it's mm. no good, mm. very quickly. Mm. And then I think the moral, the, you know, the strength of those organisations dissipates very quickly. They become demoralised very quickly. So I think the leadership issue is about actually remaining energetic, you know, about the particular thing for the period that you can. But there is a, as in the Jacinda Ardern, the better you are, I think the other side of the coin is, you know, it can come at personal cost. So it's kind of like mm. how do you do it? Over a longer period, how do you sustain that? And I think that's, again, by sharing that more broadly. It's not all on your shoulders. And I'd add a very specific one. At some point, you're going to get challenged. And when I get challenged, my initial reaction is to get defensive and argue back. And there's nothing wrong, is there, with saying, oh, that's an interesting point of view. I'll take it on board. You know, I'll to, to, to yeah, take generally. a bit of time. I'll think about it. Thank you. Yeah. So I think, going back to my earlier thing, why I do like to have people in my own organisation, sometimes deliberately have recruited people who I know are going to disagree with me, <laughs> mm. is there's going to be different perspectives mm. from different backgrounds. I'm not saying I agree with all those perspectives, but I think also one needs to be aware. 
that it's not just a rah-rah thing. You can't just get people, you know, those corporate things everyone run rah-rah, yeah, we love the company, yep. we love the corporate, we're all whatever, and then tomorrow we kill each other. <laughs> you know, to get but, the job. but there is that thing when you're challenged as a leader to think, I'm, I'm the leader. I've got to assert my authority here. That that kind of pack animal sort of thing. So another wolf has just has just nipped nipped me. I've got to bite him back. I've got to show I'm the boss. I should be smarter, cleverer. I say that is a mistake. Yes, but it's a very natural human oh, reaction. Yes, to be challenged. Yes, yes, yes. I'm glad you put it that way. Yeah. It's an instinctive reflex response. <laughs> yeah. Get lost. You know? I've got to I'm, prove I belong as the leader. I'm, I'm worthy of the position. Yeah. And you're, you know, just chucking it in my face. Mm. I must respond. So I think that is the challenge for modern leaders as well. Stuff is chucked in your face every day of the week. And we've created more ways, <laughs> you know, emails, text messages, social yeah. media, lots of ways where people really go at you personally in a way, which I think is a particularly nasty social development, yeah. but it is the reality and it's much more overt. So I think this is a challenge for modern leaders. How do you sort of take on board what's the spirit of that without necessarily reacting to just the personal challenge? Oh, and final, final question. How do you know when you should go? Like Jacinda Ardern. Well, I think she said a really smart thing, you know, is that she's been genuinely engaged. She's been genuinely open one person can't just do that all the time mm. and survive. So I think we don't allow people in these jobs, in a sense, to have six months off. Hey, hey, Jacinda, go to bed six months and come back and be six months, Prime Minister in six months' time after whatever. And perhaps we have overly, and the presidential style, we've so personalised these things that the idea, I think, at the moment, and I think uh, Prime Minister Albanese is sort of saying this, a return to a more collective cabinet mm. style Let's go. I'm not going to answer every question on everything. I'm not going to be responsible for every single thing. So I think leaders themselves need to go, hang on a sec. <laughs> every now and again, how am I going? If I'm going to ever and- sustain this, I'm going to have to not be the person who is paying the highest emotional price all the time. And and I would recommend if you are in a leadership role and think, oh, is it time for me to go? Have I still got enough energy in the tank? Listen to our episode on burnout. burnout. It's very specific about what the signs are and, and how you can deal with them. Or in the book version of Minding Your Mind, written by Ian and me, there's a chapter on burnout. The, the, the book's in three sections, how our mind works, what can go wrong, and how we can improve our mental health. If you've got any questions or comments or want to suggest further topics for us to discuss, do get in touch. Send us an email at mindingyourmind2, numeral 2 at gmail.com. And our podcast is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them. We can call Lifeline on 13 